Yo, what's up, everybody? You're listening to Between the Gutters, the podcast where we talk about the stories within the panels. Today, we continue our recommendation series with part two of our romance comics recommendations. In our previous episode, we heard from Shanice and Albert and their romance comics recommendations. Today, we'll hear from Zach and me. Um... Are we ready to move on? Sure, sure. All right. Next can go up, next. Big man Drew. All right. So my pick for romance comic is also in the realm of science fiction. This is Trillium by Jeff Lemire. And this comic was originally serialized as an eight issue miniseries. Uh, in late 2013 to 2014. It was published by Vertigo. Uh, Jeff Lemire is the, he's the writer and the artist of the comic, but it was also uh, colored by Jose Villarubia, who is one of the best colorists in the business. The concept of Trillium, I'll give you a, a brief, uh, summary without I don't want to spoil the whole story but the basic concept is it's it's about two time cross lovers so in the in the year I think 3797 so it's like far off in the future there's one of the main characters a woman named Nika and uh, her counterpart in the past is a guy named Billy who was a, a World War One vet World War One veteran so he's he's living in the year like after the war, it's like 1921 for him. And he's suffering from PTSD. And, and all he's doing now is he's uh, exploring, I guess, uh, these these Incan temples um, with his archaeologist brother or something. But what happens is he ends up going to this temple. And this temple, this, this temple turns out to be a portal through time somehow. And in the future, Nika ends up going to a similar looking temple where these aliens are and they give her a taste of these flowers and the, the flower is called Trillium. And that's what allows her to, to travel through the portal and into the past. And the other main element of the plot is that in the future, uh, by, the, by, the, by Nika's time period, humanity is uh, an endangered species. Uh, basically people are trying to run away from this deadly plague. It's, it's a sentient plague called the call, C-A-U-L. And all it does is just eradicate humanity and continue to look for more humans to eradicate. So the last human survivors um, are trying to find more of this flower trillium because they think that it'll help them either uh, survive or, or be some kind of vaccine. But all of that is kind of just window dressing because the real story is just about these two people from different time periods meeting each other and doing whatever it takes to be together. And to, to make a long story short, um, there's different elements that, that uh, bring them together and, and then kind of take them apart for a while. And they have to, they're basically trapped in, they end up getting trapped in like, alternate time periods and they're just trying to find their way back to each other. I think the romantic element 
of the story is it's it's not like a typical romance because it doesn't really feel like they spend enough time with each other to to you know develop a a relationship in a realistic way you know i mean obviously with with real people you've got to spend time with each other in order to to know more about each other and learn about each other what happens to them is that when they meet each other they end up ingesting this trillium flower and this flower uh basically gives them kind of a like a mind link where they can see each other's memories and and like feel the other person's feelings and, and emotions and that's the connection that essentially serves as the foundation um for their relationship and for their desire to to find each other again even though even after they get split up uh, across time and space yeah i um i have a copy of trillium as well and jeff lemire is someone that i often speak very highly of i have a lot of affection for him and for his work he's just uh really good at communicating emotion and um i do remember he sent me some reviews where the reviewer was a fan of jeff lemire too but he was kind of harsh with the book just because he was talking about how oh he didn't feel like it was um realistic that you know these two people would just meet and you know have the these feelings for each other but i don't know i maybe it's a testament to like my ability to like overlook things like that but i do feel like from what i remember of the story it was one of those it was it was a thing where they were both people that were damaged and they were both kind of dealing with something and they found human connection in each other mm-hmm. and and i think jeff lemire's art in large part does a lot to help like make that connection where i don't necessarily need to see them waking up with each other and then going out for a cup of coffee and then you know yeah. playfully like punching each other in the arm and going you know uh, it's it's doing... not a comic where they spend a lot of time trying to woo each other or anything yeah, like that yeah yeah like i think there are a lot of stories where you know and this is this might be kind of corny or unbelievable but you know there there are stories where people just have that inherent connection to someone and they're able to and they felt like that's you know that's that's the person that they've sought or whatever and again like i i get it maybe it's not realistic but then again you know romance as fiction is a little there are things about it that are idealized in order to make that kind of a story work you know well, yeah absolutely and it's like what you were saying how how even though um it may not be realistic there are there are people in real life meet each other in all sorts of weird ways and and build a connection too yeah and exactly. Not, exactly and i think within the within the context of the story um like all of that stuff is it is explained in the story um because that flower does that's the thing that gives them that connection with each other yeah um if if that's something that person who reads this can't get past then i don't know what to tell that 
person. I mean, it, it just is what it is. It, it's, I would tell them, <laughs> just gotta, I feel sorry for your wife. <laughs> you don't know love. <laughs> I mean, also to add in, if you're talking about realistic, I think um, time traveling portals and Incan temples is yeah. not realistic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if anything, you can think about it as those time-traveling portals serve as this interspatial temporal airport hub. So, like, love actually people <laughs> pass through and connect in some strange way. Yeah. Well, I think given the world that's uh, set up and and the rules that they've already given in the world, um, it's perfectly consistent. It doesn't really uh, violate yeah. suspension of disbelief at all for me, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Albert also mentioned how both of these characters they have some kind of damage um, in their past that really hangs over them like a dark cloud throughout their days. And when they find each other, that's like the first time in their lives in a long time when it feels like that cloud has been lifted. Cause the, the guy, uh, Billy, he's basically suffering from PTSD from World War I. And then uh, the woman, Nika, she's suffering from the traumatic loss of everyone she's ever loved in her her whole life basically yeah. so so for them to connect with each other like that it, it's romantic in the sense that it it really boils down the concept of romance into like its purest most most uh i guess ionized form because these people are split apart through time after they meet each other and it's only their connection to each other that allows them to come back and and basically like f fix what's wrong with uh the end of humanity in the, in the future timeline in nika's timeline when humanity is just an endangered species th their 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 connection allows them to, to get together and, and basically uh do something to yeah, help help humanity survive. Yeah. It's, also, um, huh? oh, go ahead. Oh, go no, ahead. no, go ahead. No, uh, no uh, finish your thought. Oh, I was going to talk about uh, the art. Oh, okay. Well, okay, I'll just go in brief. Like, um, But it does sort of, it, it does remind me of another uh, romance type film. Uh, it's more along the lines of science fiction as well, but the romance element, a big part of it, uh, is the fountain. I don't know if you guys, any oh, of you Darren, guys, this Aronofsky. Darren Aronofsky. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's yeah. a good one. Yeah, it's just you know, uh, it's it's that feeling of like timeless love. That that story where you know, there's a guy who you know, over the course of three lifetimes is constantly chasing and trying to save uh, the woman that he loves. And it's all connected to this one plant that he's trying to, like, that he's trying to make, uh, I guess, cultivate is the word, that he's trying mm -hmm. to make grow. But yeah, that I just wanted to mention that it it was something that reminded me of that. And Interesting. Yeah, it hit all the same like emotional notes for me. It's kind of funny. I was sort of thinking of that film that came out a few years ago, uh, the Tom Cruise one, Oblivion. Um, no, there were no like time travel and plants in there or anything, but uh, just some of the concepts of 
people there being a romance that connects people uh, across all these different things that are happening. Um, if you guys didn't see it, basically uh, the lead character, Tom Cruise's character, um, it's like a post-apocalyptic thing and he's been, he's been cloned like who knows how many times. Um, there's this spaceship full of essentially clones of him that they used there's to run the army planet. army of Tom Cruise's Yes, <laughs> that they used to run the planet that they've destroyed. Um, but once he discovers his wife, who has been apparently in stasis or whatever, um, there's still a piece of him that still loves her. So the whole story becomes about them sort of like getting back together and him rediscovering his humanity. But yeah, there's a lot of elements, ironically enough, that are kind of similar to what Drew was saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's as far as the artwork goes, it's it's your uh, it, it's not your typical uh, science fiction comic book kind of art because if you guys are familiar with Jeff Lemire's work, he he's got a very earthy down. He's got a signature style. Yeah, like a down to earth kind of style. Um, and and I feel like we typically think of Jeff Lemire as a as an artist when he as a when when we typically think of Jeff Lemire as an artist, we think of his independent work where he's drawing, um, you know, realistic settings, uh, things that are typically set in, in like rural kind of areas, um, dealing with everyday kind of people and everyday kind of problems. But um, here he's, he's really drawing a lot of different stuff. He's drawing, uh, you know, like World War I uh, action sequences. Um, he's drawing uh, wild jungles. He's drawing, aliens in, in on an alien planet he's drawing uh spaceships and high-tech stuff and it, it's it's really unusual because i feel like his his uh designs are kind of like a it's 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 almost retro in a sense like a retro futuristic kind of style it's like if you if you look at uh science fiction artists who drew stuff uh back in like the 50s or something you know like and how how did they imagine uh the world to look in like 50 or 100 or 200 years it's kind of like that um so like you got interesting uh machinery and technology but then nika's spacesuit it, it's just like it's it's kind of like a what do you call it um like a like those old school scuba gear suits where she's like got a like a giant suit. yeah like a diving suit she's got a fishbowl over her head basically yeah. but they live in a she also lives in a world or a timeline where people have uh you know laser pistols and stuff yeah and the coloring is amazing too because i don't i don't know if jose villarubia actually used watercolors but it's done in a watercolor kind of style yeah. it if I had to guess, I would I would guess he did it on a on a computer, um, but it it really has this that textured watercolor style to it. But there are moments where, when when there's like some special effects, like a laser beam or or something like that, it it looks like strangely uh, not out of place, but it just you can tell it stands out, you know. So it the, the artwork is really well done just to to look at on a visual level. And on top of that, I also got to mention uh, the storytelling aspects because 
the two timelines that take place in the story, when Jeff Lemire draws each timeline, uh, one timeline is basically, uh, when, you, when you read it, you read it right side up. But when he goes to the other timeline, you have to turn the comic upside down <laughs> in order to read that timeline. So it, it's, it's unusual. Um, you don't see too many comics that do that. And I think there are people who would see a trick like that and they would be like, that's a useless gimmick. What's the point of that? But I was thinking the same thing when, when I was reading, when I was rereading it, because there were times when I was like, wait, why, why did he have to turn it upside down? Um, like every other page, I'm like flipping my comic upside <laughs> down just so I can keep on reading it. And it, it's just a little bit disorienting. And I got to the point where there were some times when I flipped the page the wrong way because I lost track of which way it was right side up. <laughs> but I, I, I thought about it and I was like, you know what? That's the point of it. That is the point of it. It's supposed to be disorienting because he's trying to create this sense that these people are in, in these timelines where they're disoriented um, because they, what ends up happening is Nika ends up going to the 1920s and Billy ends up going to 3797, you know, so they're both fish out of water in these totally separate timelines. And as they're trying to get oriented to where they are, you're trying to get oriented to reading the comic. So it, it totally makes sense. And there are also points where the, it doesn't happen often, but there are a couple of points where the layouts um, get vertical, like when you're flipping the comic, you do kind of have to rotate it. And it's a really neat trick. Even there are some, there was one issue where there were two parallel stories and both of them were on like half of the page would be Nika's story right side up and the other half would be Billy's story upside down. And the, the panel layouts were symmetrical. It was like really challenging stuff um, to pull off as a creator, I, I'd say. Like he had, he clearly put a lot of thought and, and care into how he paced and laid everything out because there were uh, a lot of interesting parallels in how the symmetry worked out. Um, it's, it's something I'm curious to, to see how this would read if you were reading it digitally. I have the single issues, but if you were reading it on a tablet, I wonder if uh, the digital version actually just has everything right side up or if you actually have to put your screen on lock and then hold your, <laughs> rotate your tablet. <laughs> that, would, that would be interesting. I don't actually yeah. have the digital version. So yeah, that's Trillium by Jeff Lemire and Jose Villarubia. Highly recommend it. it. I think it's something where if you're a Jeff Lemire fan, you gotta check it out. You probably already have checked it out. Yeah. But if you're also just a science fiction fan, it, it's definitely worth checking out um, yeah. for the visual aspect. And if you're uh, interested in romance or just kind of offbeat type of stories, it's this is going to hit that sweet spot for you for sure. Yeah. I mentioned earlier that uh, one of the romance movies that I watched was like Solaris. That's another, I think, comparable sort of story, but mm -hmm. it's... I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just sentimental, but I do like those stories of, um, you know, endless time cross lovers, time cross lovers, that sort of thing where, you know, I, I guess in every story, there's always got to be some sort of obstacle and what's, what's more grand of an obstacle than, you know, a 
the space and time space and time exactly yeah right yeah yeah another one that you got to check out is uh the notebook <laughs> are you serious no <laughs> okay yeah, I, was I, was just, been, I was gonna I was say kidding. hard pass on that one hard pass on that one i'm good i, I was just trying to think of other <laughs> stories that had time cross lovers and i just thought of the notebook uh, <laughs> uh, you I never even watched out. it i don't know i don't know anything about it i just true you should check out she's all that she's all that <laughs> <laughs> they're time crossed sort of <laughs> Uh, all right yep that's my pick yes okay so i i want to kind of i want to add something toward the end of albert's whole thing and i'll add on to drew's is so we addressed why neuromancers was a sensible pick for me Mm -hmm. and i get why albert picked um alex plus ada i'll just you call alex plus ada um because since albert just has a just just has a plain distaste and just like for humanity (laughs) makes sense that albert would want to date an android my More, perfect woman. Firstly, <laughs> nobody should ever have to be with Albert, so any relationship Albert Ian would be forbidden. So it kind of works in both. Directions. Ouch, man, that's brutal. <laughs> Shanus breaks it down, man. He's a he's a psychologist of human nature. <laughs> but um, but for you, Drew, I'm trying to understand like how that why this story fits you, aside from the fact that I know you're just a big fan of science fiction. And this kind of kind of has that aspect of both science fiction and in some sense going to the Incan aspect of like a little bit of myth mythos, like mm-hmm. this notion of like the you know, the Mayan calendar, the Incan structures, that perhaps there was some visitation in the past by um, alien or future visitors that put them there. Well, I think for me there's there's two main things. One, as you mentioned, is the science fiction element. That's 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 usually going to draw my attention just because I'm a science fiction fan. Um, you, you know, my favorite, my favorite fictional genres are probably crime, science fiction, and fantasy. So any of those I'll, I'll take some notice of. But second, secondly, um, I think it's the relationship, the way that the relationship was portrayed in the story where both of the characters um, on the surface, it seems like they don't, have anything really in common with each other but because of this trillium flower they're able to just find this connection and and that's what brings them together I think maybe I don't know man you're the psychologist but if I had to self-analyze myself maybe I would say on some level uh, I just want somebody to understand me okay (laughs) or I mean, it, it seems like they're both connected by a sense of similar trauma, the sense of a feeling isolated from a world that was they experienced in an extreme kind of way. Um, I don't know. I, was, I guess it fits you also because maybe I think we all, I would see, fall in this bucket of like, I think we all feel on some level that we're born in the wrong uh, millennium. Like, I would like to believe that in two millennia. I don't think now, there's any millennium that I would have existed in where I didn't hate people. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, there's a I could have, it could have been me and the first cave, first cave person, and I would have been like, this guy's a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> I just, aside from this calling, this calling thing that's happening, uh, the calling of the culls, or the culls are calling humans, that I, I probably 
think that in the future, 2000 years from now, that we'll have kind of evolved past our base behaviors and have appreciated more of integrating analytical and thoughtful perspectives and things that would be in a society where people really did value each other as people and would make it easier to communicate and, and make connections. Hmm. Like I, I have on many, many occasions felt like I was born at the wrong time. I need to be, I need to be put back into the, into the incubation box and brought out 2000 years from now. Yeah. When people are sophisticated enough to appreciate our genius. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> wow, I that's, was also going to say, <laughs> go ahead. That's a really optimistic uh, vision of 2000 years from now. I'm with you, Zach. <laughs> The more people change, the more they stay the same. (laughs) 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 I was going to say, maybe one interpretation is you just want the path of least resistance. You just want someone to instinctively understand you. (laughs) (laughs) You just want to take drugs and be in love. (laughs) I just don't have to work for it. (laughs) I just want someone to love me just because. Is that too much to ask? (laughs) Yeah, that's... Yeah, That's... I mean, Albert, for you, yes. <laughs> All right, Zach, what you got? All right. Well, uh, my pick is definitely not a science fiction pick. Um, also, I, it made me kind of laugh earlier when you guys were reading the Wikipedia entry and you said, uh, well, part of the entry said, um, you know, usually or sometimes has happy endings because, yeah, this one doesn't. This one is not one of those kinds of stories. No, I would I would disagree with you, Zach. I think your your pick has a very happy ending. It just has an even sadder beginning. <laughs> <laughs> That's I, I true. Would say... You started with lowered expectations. Yeah, look, look. When when you start at like negative ten and you end at negative three. That's an improvement. Yeah, that, exactly. That's not speaking. That is actually very true. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say I would say it has a happy ending for me. Um, <laughs> anyone else who reads it, probably not so much. But uh, you know, to me, it's it's one of the best types of uh, romance stories. Well, um, before we go into it, I just want to say, like, in regard to like Drew's comment, like, there's this common joke that asks, "What's the difference between um, a Russian tragedy and a Russian comedy?" Um, and the answer is that in Russian tragedy, everybody, in the, at, at the end, everybody's dead. Um, but in Russian comedy, at the end, everybody's dead, but smiling. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Yeah, yeah no, that's perfect. That's perfect. Um, so, yeah, the, my actual pick, getting into the pick, the, my pick is uh, The Crow by James Obar. Um, Classic. Listeners will probably be more familiar with the film that came out. In Brandon Lee. Years. What's that? Brandon Lee was the crow. Yeah, yeah. Until he got um, chopped dead. Yeah, that was... And there's a whole, you know, other can of worms, like, surrounding that and how it happened and who did uh-huh. what. Yep. Uh, I, I'm not planning to get too into that. No, please like, don't. What's that? <laughs> I said, no, please don't. That literally yeah. like a whole other hour conversation. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other podcast in and of itself. Um. Our Brandon Lee conspiracy theories. <laughs> <laughs> well, first, we're episode nine hundred. <laughs> well, first, we're talking about it, and then we can talk about it. Let's talk Freemasons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, count me out. Count me out. I won't be doing that one. <laughs> um. So yeah, the curl probably um 
a lot of people who don't read comics probably know it from the movie. Uh, came out, I think it was like 93 or something like that, 94. Um, and I'm talking about the first film, the original film, because after that, I think there were like a couple spinoffs and maybe they even tried to do a TV series a couple years after that. But yeah, it was 94 came out. Yeah, yeah. So I'm talking about the original film um, with Brandon Lee. Um, that was sort of based on the graphic novel, The Crow. Uh, so The Crow has a pretty simple premise, actually. <laughs> um, it starts, well, it's about uh, a man and a woman, his, his fiance uh, named Shelly, um, and the guy's name is Eric. Um, they run into some very bad people <laughs> on the road uh, one night, and they do some very bad things. So these guys are all, you know, drug dealers, lowlifes, criminals. Um, so it's a double homicide. And they actually um, rape the female uh, a couple of times before and after um, she, she, before and after they murder her. So it's a double homicide with that on top of it. And the story is about the man, Eric, um, who actually comes back from the dead to avenge this, this murder that's taken place. Um, in the comic, he comes back uh, sometime later. I, I don't know if it's specified at some point, whether it's exactly a year or a little bit more or less, but it's, it's about a year, give or take. Um, in the film, they make a big, a big deal of it being exactly a year to the day that it happened. Um, so at any rate, this, this man comes back and he, it's, it's kind of a revenge story, but it's tied together by this thread of romance, which is part of the reason why I picked it. Um, it's about this man uh, avenging what happened to, to him and his fiance. Um, so throughout the process of him getting back at these guys, it's interspersed with these flashbacks where you get to see um, kind of what the nature of their relationship was before all that stuff happened. Um, so that's the general synopsis. Um, as far as why I picked it, I think because it's just one of the stories, I mean, if you, we're going to talk romance, one of the stories that just kind of resonates with me the most, like hands down out of anything, um, it's, I would find it really hard to separate the concept of love from the reality of death. I think to me, if I think of one, I can't help but think of the other. They're, they're sort of intertwined. Um, and this story kind of brings the two together. Dude, I'm, I'm looking forward to your wedding day, Zach. <laughs> can't wait hey. to hear your wedding vows that you'll say to your wife. We're all black. We're all black. That's, yeah. That's everybody's everybody's going to be dressed like they're going to a funeral. <laughs> I was going to just go black and day of wings my back to be a crow. <laughs> This is yeah, the it's, happiest it's, day of my life, but it's followed by the saddest moment of realization that I know that someday you're going to die. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's going to be the most metal wedding ever. <laughs> that is pretty metal. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's that's one reason why I picked it. Um, the other, um, as far as the recommendation goes, uh, it's it's literally like like if you get the graphic novel, it's literally just one thing. You can you can read it and and you're done. Um, as far as uh, the craft is concerned, which is another reason why I recommend it, um, it's just it's just off the charts. Uh, James O'Barr is just 
a master with, uh, with pen and ink. And there's a lot of other um, media that he uses in the comic as well. Uh, I think he uses gouache at some point. I saw an interview with him uh, a while ago and he talked about using like Kmart watercolors because that's what he grew up with. He had a really rough childhood and he figured out how to make those work for him. So he just never stopped using them ever since then. Uh, so there's a lot of different types of black and white media, um, all used with an extremely high amount of skill. Um, you can you can look at the work and you can even uh, see the influences, which actually Obar himself mentions uh, in in a number of interviews. But um, I think he talks about like like Von Von Bode and um, let's see like Bernie Wrightson, and definitely you can see some Will Eisner influence in there, and. I, I have to confess, like, I kind of knew about Bernie Wrightson, but I wasn't super familiar with his work. So I had to go look him up earlier this week. But yeah, just just stellar, stellar draftsmanship um, as far as uh, being able to handle the medium and handle light and shadow and just really use that to, to emphasize the gravity of, of what the characters are going through. Um, I will give like a disclaimer though that uh i mean obviously it's it's a really intense graphic uh book that deals with really intense graphic subject matter um there's some uh sexual references there's a lot of like drug use there's very graphic violence uh depicted um so if you are not a fan of those things or if you're easily offended by that or if you know someone and you know you're going to be reading that around them that that has issues with that, um, and then you know suicide and stuff like that. So it's it's a very dark kind of book. Uh, so if you have issues with that, I, I would recommend not checking it out. Um, other than that, in terms of story, in terms of uh, craft, in terms of accessibility, I think it's it's still you know pretty easily accessible at this point. Um, yeah, it's. I would, I would definitely highly recommend it. Um, if your, if your taste in romance, I guess, tend toward the darker rather than the lighter side. <laughs> um, yeah, for, for me, it was, it was actually when I first read it, I think I was like 18 when I first read the whole thing and, and it just blew me away. Um, quick side story, the, person who wrote it, I keep assuming everyone knows this, but there's probably people listening who don't. Um, the person who wrote it, the whole idea for The Crow um, came for, from him losing his own fiance, and it was his uh, vehicle, or it was his way of dealing with um, the grief and the basically grieving process from kind of senselessly losing someone that was that close to him. Uh, Obar was describing how his uh, fiance i think her name was beverly or something was you know just crossing the street one day and um she was killed by a drunk driver and he it just had such a a shattering like impact on him that um he, there were lots of different ways that he tried to deal with that uh, they were all very destructive and he eventually sort of because he had an artistic background and like i said a really rough childhood um he eventually figured that he had to do something and he had to figure some way to like get this out uh, or else, you know, he was basically going to self-destruct. So the crow was kind of his, his answer or his attempt to 
provide some therapy <laughs> for himself. Um, and it wound up, you know, through many twists and turns uh, that he, he was able to introduce it to someone who could get it published. Um, and it sort of took off. And then, you know, the rest is history. Uh, but it comes from a place, it, it is such a dark story because it comes from a place that um, someone is trying to to deal with grief and trying to, I guess, communicate or, or in a sense, legitimize um, what they feel. Um, so that's another reason why it, it really resonates with me in, in terms of romance, because it's, it's, something that comes from like a very real and a very visceral place. It's not something that's uh, like, like forced or some concept that someone came up with like, Oh, Hey, this would look cool. And it would get a lot of people to read it. And it would have a lot of fans. Actually, another funny side story, you know, like Obar started working on this in like 79 and didn't finish it. I think until late eighties, like 88, 89. Um, and at that point, uh, people, he was saying uh, in an interview that people kind of didn't get it. Like he would try and like sell it or, or, or peddle it to, to different publishers or whatever. And they're like, like, what is this? Is this guy a vampire? Or like, you know, like, why is he crying? No one wants to see the hero crying and stuff like that. So he was, you know, it, this was very much a time where I think people kind of didn't know what they were seeing yet. And what they were used to seeing was like, you know, superheroes and, and Green Lantern and uh, a lot of different other books that were out at the time. But for the time that it was in, uh, it was it was fairly unique. And it spoke to a scene that hadn't really taken off into the mainstream. Um, not yet. It, it did kind of a few years later. Um, this was, Drew's going to laugh, but this was all uh, before my time, before our times. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, by the time sort of like the goth, the punk, the metal scene and stuff came around and, you know, the crow was still in print and then kids my age were picking it up, like, you know, the MTV crowd and all that, we saw it. And I mean, it was in record stores. Like we immediately, it just, it just clicked because we're like, oh yeah, we know what that is. But at the time that Obar did it, it was, um, it just wasn't as well known. It, it hadn't taken off yet. Um, so I thought that was a really, really interesting kind of side note to that. Given the time that it was created in as well, uh, one thing that I appreciate now that I actually didn't appreciate as much the first time I read it um, was the fact that it's just, it's all traditional. Like it was done in a time before we had digital anything really. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just a guy just sitting at his drawing board and, and you can see everything there. I mean, it's hand lettered. It's it's got the ink. Like there's, it's a hundred percent. It's hundred percent him. Not saying anything against digital work. I mean, I like to do digital work myself, um, but you know, it it just it has a nostalgia value to me um, that I read it at a time where I that never crossed my mind. Like I wouldn't have said oh like hey this is digital or not digital or whatever i grew up like in a time before that was a huge thing like when image first started using um a lot of digital stuff or a lot of things like we would think of it um it was a huge deal for us you know mm -hmm. before that we had newsprint and four color tone and everything like that so um 
you know, it just came from a time before I, I really knew how to ask those questions. And I kind of missed that. It was, it was kind of some, it was kind of a simpler time. Um, so I guess the other draw for me would just be the nostalgia value. But uh, if anyone else, I guess, is in the same age group or kind of appreciates things that were like those kind of like, you know, late, like early to late 80s kind of style comics, um, definitely it's, it's a visual treat. Yeah, this is a very gothic type of story. Uh, the artwork, um, he, he does use a, even though, like you said, it, it's all done uh, pre-digital era and it's just black and white, he does use a variety of different styles. And you can see like some of the earlier issues or maybe even like, within the same scene, or not the same scene, the same uh, issue, he used different styles of illustrating different scenes. There are some that um, look more like they're, it's like a lot of dark graphite pencils maybe, um, and then other pages where it, it's just, you could tell he used a lot of black ink, you know? <laughs> it's it's yeah, pretty fascinating yeah. just to, to look at the different pages, even, even I have a copy uh, of the trade paperback. Um, and I haven't read the story in a bunch of years, but it's, it's a fun comic just to flip through because you can look at a, a single panel or a single page and just look at all the ink that he spilled on the paper, man. And, and it, it just looks, it, it just looks good. You know, I don't, I don't really know how else to describe it other than to say it, it looks like, um, the best kind of 80s comic, you know, and when I think of 80s independent black and white stuff, you know, that was an era when the direct market was starting to boom with a lot of black and white stuff, especially when uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles took off. But it kind of feels like that Eastman Laird Ninja Turtle stuff and this stuff by uh, James Obar, that's probably like kind of the peak of that kind of artwork where it's just, you know, one or two guys doing their own thing uh, without having a whole bunch of, uh, like, oversight from anybody else. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think on a lot of pages and in a lot of areas, I mean, even within the same panel, like, um, when you get to, well, it doesn't really have chapter marks i'm trying to see if there's a way to, to name it or whatever but there's that scene where he goes to uh, gideon's pawn shop which by the way is, is one of my favorite scenes from the story but there's that uh first couple of panels or that first panel sequence where you can see i don't know how many different techniques let me let me count them up here i mean there's like brushwork there's i can see some nib pin there i can see some um like some splattering like for the texture uh, there's a little bit of cross-hatching. Um, I mean, it's it's all over the place, but he uses, you know, every technique you can think of to kind of just to kind of just pull it all together. Um, yeah, I do agree that from that time period, um, those are a couple of the highlights. I I do enjoy how he handles um, his his anatomy and his uh, I guess the the physicality, if I can call it that, of of the characters. Um, mm -hmm. 
a lot of the way Obar learned to draw was like not from copying other comic artists. He talked about, you know, being in a museum and like copying statues and copying like Michelangelo and stuff all day. And a lot of that kind of comes out in, in the way that he draws the figure and the way that he draws uh, how the how the figures interact with their environment, like the actual movements or the body language of the figures. Um, another interesting side note, a lot of those he was saying, uh, I, I guess I'm going to be dating myself in the comic a little bit, but <clears throat> a lot of those things he was saying, uh, especially for the crow, he kind of attributes uh, the body language to like Iggy Pop and like Jim Carroll and like, you know, people that were, that were big in the bands that Obar used to listen to at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, I know a few of those bands. I have listened to a few of them. Uh, but a lot of them are like, again, it's before my time. It's like too far back for me to really know too much about them. Uh, Joy Division is one that I do know about. Um, Pitch Shifter, I listened to for, for a little bit. Um, it was much, much younger, though. Um, I don't know if Obar... No, he did, he did. I think there's lyrics or something from The Cure in here. Definitely a big yeah. Cure fan. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm a fan of The Cure and enjoyed The Vision as well. And I was flipping through the, the comic to see if I could find those uh, those quotes. And he there are... He he does quote entire lyrics from The Cure, Joy Division. There's a a Rimbaud poem in here. Like it, it's it's very gothic, man. It, this is this is a gothic romance. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. There's actually one um, right right near the chapter called Elegy. Uh, it's for, it's basically from Robert Smith. It's called The Hanging Garden, but basically mm-hmm. has the whole uh, lyrics like listed listed right there. Yeah. So that's another thing. Like as soon as I picked it up and and I saw it and like visually it grabbed me and then I'm like, this guy even like listens to the same stuff that I listen to. So like, you know, I was I was kind of roped right in immediately. But yeah, huge care fan. Um, and I don't know. There's just there's a lot of other things in here, and a lot of common threads um, woven throughout the story to kind of to kind of wrestle with you know, those ideas, just existential stuff, you know, the idea of, of life and mortality and, and the brevity of life and, um, you know, things not being really as trivial as, as we think they are sometimes, you know, when you love someone and you're with them and (laughs) you're with them all the time, every day. Um, I, I think some people sometimes can take that sort of thing for granted and if nothing else, this, this story is a great reminder to never take anything for granted. You know, every second that we get, especially with the people that we love, is a gift. Um, and we can't just always assume that there's going to be a tomorrow because one day there won't be anymore. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a story that I think, uh, what was I going to say? There's... Definitely a lot of, uh, and I don't mean this in a dismissive way, but it's a story that has a lot of angst. Um, I think, I think from some quarters of the population, there, there are people that don't like, uh, angsty material, angsty art, art, like whether it's music or some other kind of, uh, 
medium, but uh, this is, yeah, it's just full of anguish and, and heavy emotions. Um, I mean, so much of the story is, is the crow. He's, he's just sitting around in his house thinking about all the good times he had with Shelley um, and just dwelling on that pain, let, just thinking about all the good times that he can no longer have. And he's just sitting there thinking about her um, and, and he's just cutting himself, you know, like cutting his wrists and cutting his arm and stuff. It's, it's like really dark. Like that's not <laughs> the kind of behavior that you want people to be doing, you know, it's not healthy, but it's a, it's a story. And, and it's a fascinating story of how his, his love is basically the motivating force for his quest for revenge. I mean, even though that's not the healthiest behavior, in all honesty, when people experience a tragedy of that level, a lot of people do kind of like just sit around by themselves and in some way like... They brood. Put, they yeah. brood and put themselves through like a physical or mental ringer where they are not cutting their arms, hurting themselves. And and they see it as somehow like, you know, also part of this like survivors go like, why did it happen to, my, to them, not to me? Mm -hmm. They punish themselves because they don't know what else to do, but they want to feel something. And they're not ready to let go of the person they've just lost. They still have these fresh memories, these, this sense of like what they were about to have for the future that's now not even at all physically possible. Yeah. So um, the cutting part certainly has a more darker tone to it, but it's just a reflection of the way we typically inflict pain upon ourselves as a sense of, in our own minds, uh, a punishment or an exhibit us exhibiting a sense of we are in pain because we are now we do not have the thing that we thought we would have now that we are suffering because we are lacking that positive life that we had planned because mm -hmm. it's almost yeah. like saying the absence of something positive what's left is, is that is that like a negative hole so to speak and they're just yeah. filling it up yeah that's sort of that's, that's sort of vacuum for sure um, yeah, different people have different ways of, of processing um, emotionally, like like taking a hit like that. Uh, even Obara was saying um, everything up until that point, until he met his fiance, um, he had just gone through so much stuff in his life, and he felt like you know that was that was the the one bright spot that he had, like made it through all of this whatever, like just got dragged through the mud and almost like his reward for finally dealing with all that. Just like, you know, just got to wait long enough and, and something good's going to happen. Um, and so something good happened. And, you know, he was, like I said, his, his fiance, he, he was planning on, on marrying this person. Um, and actually at the time that it happened, um, if I'm not mistaken, he was planning on marrying her fairly soon um, in a matter of, of a few months, maybe. Um, but, you know, it just, it didn't happen. It wasn't, it was not to be. So yeah, there is that element of just feeling kind of shattered. And mm -hmm. if, if someone didn't want to read it and they didn't want to pick it up because of that level of angst and, you know, like Drew was saying, that level of um, just the heaviness of the subject, the subject matter, uh, I get it. I understand it. Um, that may not necessarily be for everyone. Uh, and I wouldn't judge anyone for, for not wanting to, 
uh, look at that or take that emotional journey with someone. But then on the, on the other side of it, on the flip side of it, it's like, to me, it's like, hey, this is a real person <laughs> dealing with real pain. Like, we you don't always of? get it right. What's that, Albert? What are you afraid of? Why are you afraid <laughs> to face your feelings? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like we, we don't always get it right. And we have uh, different ways of, of trying to work through that. And not all of those are good ways. But, you know, if anything, it's, it's an object lesson in a sense of, of what not to do, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah I remember the first time I read The Crow or the first time I discovered The Crow I was definitely way too young to be reading it <laughs> Same. I remember when I was a kid I must have been in uh let's see maybe late elementary or, or early middle school that's pretty yeah, sometime in the mid '90s, right? And I, I was at some bookstore, and they had a comic book s section with uh, trade paperbacks and collected editions. And even back then, uh, I found a copy of The Crow, and I was like, I didn't really know anything about, uh, you know, mature readers' comics. It was just with all the other comic books they had there. <laughs> <laughs> I picked it up, and I, I was like, What is this? It's oh, it's in black and white. This is kind of weird. But I tried to, re I started reading it. And um, I don't think I read the whole thing, but I definitely read enough where I was like, this is intense. There's like people getting killed and stuff. This is, I don't know if I should be reading this, but I'm just going to be reading it. <laughs> and another funny thing that I have, uh, another funny memory I have associated with the crow is that when I was in college, I had this one friend in the dorms who was a massive Crow fan. He did not, he wasn't really into comics in general. I mean, I think he might have enjoyed the occasional superhero joint, but he didn't really collect comics, but he, he did collect the Crow. So it was like his goal to, or his hobby to collect every edition of the Crow. So like he had all the issues every time they would make a new printing of the trade paperback, he would pick it up. Uh, he was a big fan of the movie and the soundtrack and he just like loved the crow. <laughs> That's quite an obsession with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that guy's dedicated, man. I, as I remember, there's like quite a few different like printings and different copies of those that got released over the years. Yeah. Not to mention four movies and a TV series that lasted one season. <laughs> I forgot about the TV series. Apparently it's a Canadian production. I don't think it got a lot of like attention because I remember I only found out about it after the fact and it was like in reruns and it was like only on super late at night. So it'd be midnight or something like <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, I, I, I remember seeing random rerun episodes of it um, years ago and I was like, there's a Crow TV series. And I, I, don't, I don't remember much from it because I guess it just didn't strike my mind because I think I was doing something while watching it. But, um, I mean, it spawned a franchise, albeit each movie and, each, and the TV series were done by completely different creative people. Yeah. Yeah, the TV series was pretty cringe. I'm not going to lie to you, though. Um, the soundtrack, uh, I had it in my tape player for, man, like, months. Like, I don't know, like, a month and a half or something. Like, I would always be sitting at the kitchen table and, like, 
um, you know, just drawing, but like, that's what I would have playing. Like as soon as I saw like Deftones and like Iggy Pop and like all these other bands on there, I was like, oh, this is the coolest movie ever. Like, <laughs> like I'm into this. Like my little kid brain just, that was the best thing. And my dad would like yell at me to like, you know, stop listening to that garbage. Take your headphones <laughs> off. <laughs> well, you know, good music is good music, whether or not you heard it for the first time or the one millionth time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Albert, did you read The Crow? I actually never did. I, I, my first exposure to it was the movie. And like at that point, I think my first thought was, um, so this was like in the early days of comic book movies before, you know, before even the Sam Raimi Spider-Man. So like all we had up to this point was like Batman and Richard Donner's Superman. So whenever, you know, as a kid collecting comic books and not very many, just because I didn't have the money for it, whenever I saw anything on TV that was comic book related, you know, my little mind would like get excited so when the crow came out, I was like, "Oh, okay, this is a thing." And then you know, to find out that it was connected to a comic, I think my child mind was like, "That's enough for me to be excited about this. <laughs> He's a superhero." <laughs> so, I did. I did not know that the crow. So my first experience with Alberts was the movie. I did not know that crow was a comic book until Zach brought it up as an option for romance. Really? Oh. Yeah. oh wow. Wow. Okay. Now you got something you got to track down, Shanus. Yeah, well, I have to read that plus Alex, along with Alex plus Ada and Trillium. There are a lot of things I have to read. I have been too busy to get into. We're, I mean, we just had a discussion earlier about how I'm behind on getting my omnibus editions of things that I want to read in collected form. We are swimming. We are drowning in an ocean of comics. <laughs> yeah. I do think it's interesting how... You know, to go back to the idea that we each picked something that was, I think, that expressed our outlook of how we viewed romance. So I do think that that was an interesting choice, Zach. And, you know, I don't, I, I mean that with in all sincerity and like all genuineness, but it's just, it's pretty different than uh, what each of us picked and it's I, I like I don't know how else to describe it other than I, I don't know is real the word I mean it's, it's like raw I guess yeah, I was say, I was say visceral yeah, yeah visceral there we go that's that's a good better way to put it uh, you know it's um, it's interesting I don't think any of us picked anything that was straight up like a like a schlocky saccharine like romance you know <laughs> right none yeah. of us did yeah. so, so zach does that mean that you like your romance to be very angsty and full of intense feeling and passion well i i don't really i don't really consume much romance like it's not really it's not really something i i go after a lot but i think some things maybe resonate with me more than others. I mean, I think it was Oscar Wilde, right? Who said, uh, the mystery of love is greater than, or the mystery of death is greater than the mystery of love. I hope I'm not getting that. No, he said the mystery of love is greater than the mystery of death. Um, but the two are kind of, like I said, it's, there's just that weird sort of um, relationship or juxtaposition between the They're two. They're constantly, um, it's like, 
I don't know how else to put it, but it's kind of like yin and yang in the sense that they're like deeply intertwined with one another. And I do think that that's like you've expressed that a couple of times on this podcast. And I think that that I mean, that makes sense that that's how you view um, romance. I, I mean, if that's how you view it. Uh, I do have like one funny story that's <laughs> semi related to that specific topic it I remember I was taking an English class once and uh, we had this uh, this professor he's, he's kind of this older British guy right and he's talking about um, he's telling us he was talking about poetry and he was talking about how like love or uh, sex and death are like deeply intertwined with one another love sex and death right the, they're like deeply connected and he's telling this story to the class and or he's he's talking about it in terms of how it relates to poetry and then he starts going into this story about how um you know his wife died and you know he had this really like dark period uh shortly after his wife died and all the emotions he was going through and it was really like really somber all of us were like oh that's so sad that's you know that's uh, that's a terrible thing that happened to him and then he starts all of a sudden going into and then i remembered you know, a few days after she died, I started having these strong sexual urges. And then it just went from like us feeling bad to just us feeling super uncomfortable <laughs> that he was talking about these like <laughs> lustful feelings that he was having, like in the absence of his wife. <laughs> well, oh my God. First question, like him even opening up and talking about story in a, in a classroom environment seems very like inappropriate. It's an English class. It's an English course. So, like, I, I get what he was trying to go for. But he was just trying to explain that, you know, amongst all the feelings that he was feeling in this moment of grief, like, part of it was also this immense sense of right. no, loss I, for I, his wife. I, I, at least I hope that's what he was... No, I get that. I just, I just feel like... <laughs> I just feel like, because um, I think it's because your class is considered a captive audience, sharing a personal story of that nature, I think, is against school policy. If you yeah. like a third person perspective saying, you know, people experience these things, yeah, then that would remove the personal nature of him interacting with students who who have to deal with him for the semester. I, yeah. I just imagine if I was such a class, I would also feel a bit awkward, but also be like, this is really also just very inappropriate. Like, I have to come back and see him tomorrow, and I don't know if I can make eye contact. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. That's but, uh, a little bit yeah. much. But Zach, you're, the, the quote you made, you the quote you quoted by Oscar Wilde was, is that it, it kind of makes sense, right? Because like, when you think about death, for the most part, we experience death by ourselves sure our loved ones may be around us but won't we die it's we're not dying with other people we're we're just dying and once we're dead we are we ask the question like what comes after death while we're alive because it helps us cope with the fear of death but whatever it may be afterward once we're dead we're dead it's it's, we're not going to re-experience life as we knew it but the thing with love is that love requires another person as we talked earlier there's a certain aspect of chaos and miraculousness in in two people getting together and spending the rest of their time together when it to any sense of rationale 
you're just going to get under each other's skin more often than not. <laughs> and to persist in that and to the rest of your life to be together is like, is like, I guess almost like seemingly like fighting against the natural sense of just get, get away from each other. Um, that's, and so that, that's, that is the mystery of like the mystery of like, how can two people do this? And the fact that love can't transform people and that transformation itself is also not well understood. And, and that's something that we can observe and experience because it's something that's happening while we're alive, something we can alter influence and be influenced by. So, I mean, Oscar Wilde is a smart guy. <laughs> well said, well said. Um, yeah. He had a lot of experience with, with that sort of thing uh, in his life. Um, just to kind of add on to what you said and maybe take it a level deeper, um, even, even the sacrifice involved in love to me is, is in a sense mysterious. You are, you are making a decision, you know, to put that person's interest ahead of your own. Uh, it's it's about the other person. The two people are, are sacrificing a piece of themselves to be with each other, and somehow or other, they make that decision. Um, it's a willful act, but it's almost like making music. You can know all the scales, and you can know musical theory or whatever, but actually making music comes from somewhere, and that process is is in a sense mysterious. We don't we don't know exactly what goes on. We know people do it. We know people you know have that uh, experience all the time but it's not something that we could we could you know codify or like list out um methodically like you would like a a, a baking recipe or something like that um so you know the measure of of how much you love something in a sense uh is also equal to what you're willing to sacrifice for it um which is another thing that you see in the story like i mean the whole story is just rife with that mm -hmm. um but yeah, it's just, it's a really, a really fascinating thing because it's a very human thing and it's a very common thing. Um, but it's also something that is so deep and so personal that, you know, a hundred different people can have a hundred very different experiences of it. The same as beauty. We all know what beauty is, but for some reason, many of us experience it differently. I like that analogy to music because I was thinking like along the same lines until you said the word music and it kind of kind of you for me is that it's as if two people have a um, they're required to play a two piece orchestra but neither of them has a sheet of music and they have to be in harmony with each other so they have to just be in tune and work in accordance with each other because like the idea of a sacrifice isn't just this notion that the man sacrifices to provide for his wife but the wife sacrifices a part of herself to make her husband happy. And they're doing this mutually in a manner that is beneficial to both of them and, and not sacrifice in the sense of them diminishing themselves or, or literally make themselves miserable to make the other person happy. It's, it's they're, they're making the choice to give up something that they know means less to them than having the person in life with them. And, and, but that is a form of sacrifice. And that is very, very counter to us being human beings because we'd like to, whenever possible, not sacrifice anything. It's like, the idea of like, even though none of us would ever be in such a situation, like, like, would you give up your library of comic books if it meant, you know, you'd make space for your home and your family? Like, like that idea is not entirely unreasonable, but it's just like, but these kind of things, like, would we make such a choice? Like, what would we be willing to give up that we know we would get more out of in that quote unquote that that desirable that exchange that we that you know we're looking for. Well, now, really, we're all gonna, if we get married, we would marry somebody who's going to appreciate and desire us to have our library with us, that it's a part of us and our identity and um, 
are a sign of of exploration of in, of of intellectual ideas of a, a perspective and view of the universe. But that being said, like, what if you just don't have space? You know, what if you need the money? What if you just you know, you know all these things you have to make choices for that. There's we, the door. Like, she can uh, hit it. <laughs> <laughs> hit the road, Jack. I'm giving up like, nothing. <laughs> or you could be like the crow and just go on a quest of revenge. <laughs> but she's not dead. Doesn't matter. I have to have my pound of flesh. Hey, if, if you gotta, if you gotta lose all your comics, it's like your comics are dead. So that's the time to go on a quest. But then who are you revenging your your wife because you had to give up your comics for her? It, oh, it basically just sounds I didn't that, think I'm about just that making her life terrible. <laughs> that's Albert's revenge, making yeah. his wife's life terrible. Like every night when she sleeps, I fart in her face. <laughs> <laughs> like take that for making me get rid of my comics. <laughs> After it three jerks. nights, she's like, she's like, I want a divorce. I can't take this. This is too much. And then she asks for half her comic books and the divorce. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you could always get a storage uh, thing, like uh, like some of us have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, th- I think you're required to disclose anything you may own. I think. I don't mm, think my comics yeah. are worth anything uh, except for yeah. sentimental anyway. Yeah, exactly. There, I'm sure I have something's worth something, but it's not the money. It's just more like the fact that I don't want to give up my library. Like it's weird. Like I think about this idea. I think about it sometimes about like if I were to get married, like I would love for my wife to read the things I have, be it comic books or other literature I have. Mm-hmm. But it, it, but in some level of my head, I'm thinking that's still my shit. Like <laughs> it's, it's mine. It's like this, <laughs> this is my stuff. Like it's going to be protected, preserved, respected, and it's mine. And it's like you can, you can, you can partake. What, what if, what if you marry a woman who's very interested in reading your comics, but she has a habit of reading comics in bed while eating chocolate? Oh yeah, no, that's that's not going to fly. Because <laughs> right away that means she she doesn't have a certain sense of respect for general things the written it's word. a larger problem which means i probably wouldn't get along with her okay <laughs> you got to write that in your dating profile so, so everybody knows <laughs> you can't eat chocolate and read things in bed <laughs> well it's it's not a big deal to me i mean like if she basically she just has to be cool with it like if if i read comics and i like that then you know, she just has to be okay with me having my thing that I like to do. I mean, even if I didn't have any comics, I still draw comics and I love to draw comics. So like if she just straight up hates comics, she's going to have a really, really rough time with me. Like, I, I just don't think it's going to work out. I mean, well, I mean, I think in general, in any relationship, um, it's not about always being together, doing things always together. Like we, it, as a human being, we want a bit of our own alone space and alone time. Um, and generally that happens at work, but when you're at work, you're also some, generally surrounded by other people that you don't like. And I, I think having some peace of quiet, even when you're, just because your relationship doesn't mean you have to be there glued to each other all the time. It's like having a little space makes you desire each other more um, when you're together. And I think it's healthy, in fact, um, to have your own individual activity because, you know, people think about relationships as, you know, like, oh, I don't want to give up my individuality. It's not about giving up individuality. It's about building things together. You're still your own individual. You still have your own mindset, your own thoughts, your own feelings. 
so that the things that affect your partner you want to share and communicate but the things that belong to you you should have the space and 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 the freedom to express to your partner that hey i need i need about an hour to do this for myself to recollect my thoughts because you know as human beings we all operate very differently and if we're not given that space for ourselves it can um um create attrition in the relationship it can it can be toxic if we're not allowed to you know, um, relax and, you know, recompose ourselves. Yeah. Well said, well said. That's kind of what I was getting at. Just that mutual respect for individuality. And, you know, like it would be the same from me to her. It's like, Hey, if you have something that's your thing and you need to do that, I respect that. Um, as long as we can say that to each other, that's fine. Uh, but when it gets to be a thing of like, you have to do what I want you to do when I want you to do it. Um, if, if someone starts giving orders to me, it's over. We're done. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. But it goes both ways. Yeah. But like going to Drew's question, how would you feel if she were reading your comic books while eating chocolate in bed? Mm, that, that would make me cringe a little bit. <laughs> it would not, it would not be a deal killer, but I'd have to say like, a, I don't know, like a part what of you. Would like, recoil, what, if, like, what if she like literally was holding chocolate in her hands and got smudged and she was still turning pages completely yeah. irrelevant to like, She's putting chocolate on your comic book pages. Okay. Um, it better not be like one of my like really, really favorite ones. If it's something that's <laughs> kind of like, you know. Oh, you don't have a choice. Was, she picks whatever she wants to read in that two moment. If, if it was Court of Vowels, then it's cool. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I don't it's know. If it was, yeah. Let's, let's say if it was The Crow or if it was, you know, something else I really enjoy. Maybe DMZ or something. I don't know. I'd probably say something to her about it, but like I said, that's not going to be like, you know, oh, the relationship's over because you got chocolate on my comic book. Like, like <laughs> this little kid type thing to say. But yeah, I mean, like, I'd, I'd talk to her about it. What about you, Drew? How would you feel about seeing your uh, your literature be... Yeah, yeah, chocolate and comic books don't mix. <laughs> so, don't uh... let friends read comic books while chocolating. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I don't have a problem with her reading my comics. I want her to read my comics. I don't have a problem with her eating chocolate. I just don't want her doing them at the same time. <laughs> While in bed. Yeah. yeah, simple as that. I don't want I don't want no chocolate in my bed either. <laughs> but you're okay with just comics in bed, right? Oh, that's like totally fine. In bed? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds reasonable. Yeah. Game, in fact, you could read the comic book together. Yeah. The there evening. we go. There we go. Drew, as as soon as Shana said that earlier, like I visibly saw you grimace. Like <laughs> you just you just like made this face when you said that. <laughs> oh man, that was a that was a good talk, guys. That was a that good was excellent round of recommendations. We had some relationship shenanigans and advice from Dr. Shanus and Zach. <laughs> I feel whole now. I feel I feel ready to face the world. Could I could I make um, one or one or two extra additional recommendations? Oh yeah, you got for, some honorable mentions. I got some honorable mentions because, like I mentioned earlier, like we I think we each chose something that wasn't um, that wasn't your typical sort of romantic fair or like what your average person would consider. So, you know, for someone who's looking for something more conventional, I did want to offer up some things uh that they could try out uh if they're just looking for something you know something kind of sweet or something that just makes them happy or whatever 
Um, the comic that I was thinking about was Long Distance by Tom Zoller. Oh, um, yeah. That's a, I think, that's one. Yeah, I think that's a really great... Um, it's, it's only four issues long, and it's a story about um, a guy and how he meets his girlfriend um, or, you know, his future girlfriend at the airport and just how their relationship progresses uh, over time, even though they both live, I believe, like two or three states apart and yeah. how they make it work for themselves. Are, are they big story. states or small states? Uh, I think they're Midwest states from what I remember because mm-hmm. I think he lived in Chicago and I forget where she was from. Uh, no, she li- might have lived in Chicago and he might have been... Was he in New York? I don't remember. I, I think it was Ohio. Oh, yeah, right. I think you're right. Yeah. I'm not 100% but sure. Either way, they still had a long-distance relationship. Yeah. I mean, it was at least by plane. It was From what I remember in the comic, it was like a four- or five-hour drive and maybe a couple hours by plane, depending, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, for so if there's someone out there who just wants a lighthearted fare, uh, that's that's one recommendation. And that's, I mean, that's definitely something that would probably be more under the traditional romance category. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's no science fiction trappings or... Yeah. It, it doesn't um, make a joke of things. I mean, there's definitely humor in it, but it's like relationship humor. Yeah, totally. Just totally. as a comment, Chicago isn't that far from Ohio. I'm, I'm, I don't remember specifically where it was, but I'm just... What's the book called? Uh, Long Distance. Long Distance. Yeah. Long Distance. By Tom Zoller. Tom, yeah. T-H-O-M. Yeah. So uh, there's that. Uh, the other thing that I'd recommend was, I mentioned it earlier, and it's not a comic, but uh, Tamako Love Story. Like, that's a great anime, and it's just one movie uh, that kind of serves as an endpoint to a series, Tamako Market. But mm-hmm. I'd recommend that if you're just looking for something, again, that just is lighthearted and just makes you feel good. Um, there we go. What if I want to feel bad? Beat the crow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> seriously. Um, before we end, like I, I did have one question earlier, but have any of you guys ever read any like Jane Austen or anything like that? I've, I've never. I have. Yeah. I've never read too much of that. I've read uh, Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice. Okay. Uh, for um, me, I think it was just Pride and Prejudice. Did, I, I'm personally a big fan of Pride and Prejudice. Um, I. I definitely know that the, the writing style of back in those days is a bit different than what we do now. Like, she, she does read a lot of the same descriptions, literally almost like verbatim, many, many times over. And that seemed to be the style during that period of time. Um, and Pride and Prejudice, I like because the female characters, uh, partic- I think it was Elizabeth, um, particularly, um, was very sarcastic, and her father, like, kind of encouraged that, even though it kind of shocked, I think, her mother when she was around. Um, and so, and the characters, like, I think Darcy was the, was the main male character who she ends up getting together with, they behave in very practical, reasonable ways for the most part that doesn't kind of annoy you. Whereas if you read Sense and Sensibility, like it really almost reads like chick, um, fiction, like, like annoyance, like the female characters all behave like, like, like dimwits. The male characters are almost like one-dimensional. Like, okay, these are surgical guys who 
think they're they're the they're the shit and they're going to get their girls and whatever it, like and to the point like it, it 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 works because it translates to the modern era and it's like yeah there's not much of a difference between the way people really behave sometimes you kind of see personified more so in hollywood but i just didn't like the characters at all sense sensibility and i did enjoy Pre prejudice and it turns out that sense of sensibility was actually i think her first book that she ever wrote and Pride and Prejudice, I think, was the last one she ever wrote. Okay. So I'm kind of curious to see how she evolved as a writer because I do think Pride and Prejudice is actually a really good book. I liked it. Yeah, I was just curious because I do think that those tend to be considered like pretty popular amongst people who who enjoy romance as a genre. Yeah, I mean, I could be wrong, but it it's a great so, comment. Yeah, it's a, it offers a great commentary on like relationships and the the way women and men were taught and, and the, the way they behaved in society at that time. It's, it's, it's very, it's a very fascinating, like, like insight. Um, but as literature, I would, I would be loath to reread Sense and Sensibility. I would actually not mind rereading Pride and Prejudice again. I, I did have fun with that one. Okay. Good to know. What did you think about them, Zach? Um, Sense and Sensibility I've actually never read. Uh, Pride and Prejudice I had, pretty similar uh, assessment to Shanice. I, I enjoyed it just oh, for the fact okay. that it was that it was humorous to me. Mm. Man, you y'all some sophisticates. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've only read Sense and Sensibility and I, I didn't like that. Um, and then I read like about half of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and gave up. <laughs> <laughs> In my head, I was like, he's about to say Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, and you did not disappoint. <laughs> I actually have that book, but I've never gotten around to reading it. I'm kind of curious. Um, uh, be, I don't think it's worth reading, man. You're better off with the original. <laughs> I'm going to read it just, for the, for just because I have books somewhere, sitting around somewhere, and I'm just kind of curious. But I think it spawned a whole genre of things, because I think at that time, there were a bunch after of them. they wrote Abraham Lincoln, yeah. The Vampire Hunter. Yeah. And they made a movie about that one. I think they also made a movie about Pride, Purchase, and Zombies too, but I only saw the Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter movie. I think there was also Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters. Yeah, <laughs> I remember that. Wow. It was yeah. it was pretty contrived and gimmicky. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, like the movie itself, like Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, you just like, you watch it and it's like your brain just shuts off. It's just exactly. like, Shane, is, just you like, guys, no, I, I don't want to think. It's not a good movie. Yeah. Not a good movie. It's, it's something you'd probably watch with friends if you wanted to like do like a like a drinking or some some game. Yeah, I couldn't say it was something that you could enjoy because it was so bad that you were just entertaining <sighs> yourself like laughing at it. It, it wasn't even that. It wasn't I think it's bad. like one of those movies that's so bad, it, like your brain goes into a completely like bizarre direction of like I can't comprehend this. It's so just actually like, bad. <laughs> it's just actually bad, is what it is. <laughs> um. Yeah, before we uh, sign off, I was going to see if uh, Zach and Shanice, if you guys had any other uh, romance comics recommendations. Um, well, you know, one of the things that you texted me, which um, which would go back into, I think, a more traditional type of romance story, would be Blankets, I think. Mm. Craig Thompson's Blankets, yeah. Yeah, Craig yeah. Thompson's Blankets, which only was published, I think, as a trade paperback, right? It wasn't a single issue. Yeah, thing, a graphic right? novel. Graphic novel, yeah. Um... um uh, there are actually, uh, once we started texting, there are actually quite a number of actually uh, good romance stories or stories that focus on the romance part. Like, yeah. Abel's um, storybook 
um, Storybook Love. Storybook Love was a focus story on Bigsby Wolf and Snow White in the larger scheme, I think, of the what's go, what was going on with the fabled town. Mm-hmm. Kill My Boyfriend by Grant Morrison. It's been a while since I read it. But Kill Your Boyfriend, isn't it? Kill Your Boyfriend. Kill Your Boyfriend, yes. Yeah. Um, I don't think that that's... I mean, it's... If you're recommending it as a love story, like, I get it. I, I don't know if I would necessarily consider it, like, a conventional love story just as, oh, no, I I I was saying the only yeah. one i could think of conventional was blankets but in but when, yeah. but in the oh, bigger, okay, okay. Um, i'm sorry i missed that i missed that for all mentions yeah. um the, and there are actually quite a lot of them now that now that you know with all your texts that there's a lot that's actually written that way but yeah. so few i think take the traditional route yeah yeah maybe in the past when there were more romance comics in general i think it was like that but nowadays like most romance comics seem to have some either some kind of twist or they're like part of like some There's of the subgenre. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I looked it up. Um, between Chicago and Ohio, Columbus, where the two characters take where the two characters are in um, love distance, distance. Uh, it's only a five and a half hour drive, so it's literally like almost going to LA from San Francisco, but even less. That's, yeah, but that's, that's still, still what I would consider a long distance yeah. relationship. Yeah, but you're in the Midwest, so it's open. It's open interstate, so you're going in probably even less time than that. Probably five hours. I don't want to drive five hours for another person. <laughs> yeah, I, I probably wouldn't it's, either. But but it's not so long distance they couldn't meet up. Like yeah, I mean it's it's not the worst kind of long distance, but it's not ideal either. It's still pretty inconvenient, is what I'd I'd say. Yeah, definitely. If well, it's winter, make her drive you don't to you, Albert. I probably would. <laughs> well, I hope you got a nice hotel. You ain't staying with me. <laughs> Zach, did you have any more recommendations or honorable mentions? You know, actually, this time, no, no, I don't. I don't <laughs> really have any other, like, I don't have, like, romance comics or anything. In my <laughs> yeah, for me, I, the other thing that I thought of was uh, this comic from a. Uh, Nick Spencer and Christian Ward. It was one of their early comics. It's called The Infinite Vacation. It's another science fiction themed uh, miniseries. This one was published by Image uh, maybe like nine years ago now. Christian Ward is the guy who drew uh, Odyssey for with Matt Fraction and, and uh, Black Bolt with Saladin Ahmed. But uh, his earlier work isn't quite as accomplished as, as those. It still looks good. Um, but The Infinite Vacation is a story about uh, a guy who has basically in their continuity, in their world, the multiverse exists and he can go to, there's a service called Infinite Vacation where you can, you pay them. It's like an app on your phone, you pay them and you can go to another alternate reality and basically live the life of your, you know, your parallel, the parallel version of yourself. So he he likes to live these different lives and eventually he meets a woman, um, and yeah, to make a long story short, it, it, it just it's another one of those stories where it's like the 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 distance between uh, these two people has they have a connection. So regardless of what reality he's in, you know he's she's kind of his tether or mm-hmm. his anchor, I guess. So oh. that was that was something I enjoyed. Um, and then yeah, like Shanice was saying, there's a lot of comics where the they're not necessarily romance comics, but I do like the romantic elements in the stories. Like he mentioned fables. 
and Bigby Wolf and Snow White. That's definitely a good one. Um, another one that I always really enjoyed was Sandman Mystery Theater, which was a 90s crime comic about the golden age Sandman. But I always thought that the relationship between Sandman and his girl, Diane, I, really, I thought that was really well done because over a course of about like 60 issues, they, they go from being strangers to acquaintances to friends and then lovers and, and partners. Like I thought that was really well done. Mm. You know, on that tone, I would say like the Hawkman, Hawk Girl stories, I would say, Eric, uh, an ever ongoing romance. The Jeff Johns one? I haven't heard the Jeff Johns one, but like just the, the story is about like them being lovers and like just the issues Seth that arise with their love and the, the conflicts time. and the challenges they face. All right. That was a longer episode than I thought. I guess we had more to say about romance than any of us expected. <laughs> <laughs> Not bad. Not bad. Pleasantly surprising. Yeah. Shanice, Zach, always a pleasure having you guys. Thanks for That's always fun talking comic books and life stuff and you know making use of my non-existent psychology diploma. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having us, Drew. Thanks for listening to Between the Gutters. See you guys next time.